in many ways, we feel that you're discovering this quality of right attitude as you approach your meditation practice is more important than the particular meditation technique that you end up working with or range of techniques that you work with. So I want to talk this evening about this quality of right attitude, how to investigate it, how to learn about it as you go in a really simple and practical way. One of the uh, traits, you might say, of uh, Buddhist meditation lineages is that they can lend themselves to a strong quality of striving. Because there is, throughout all the Buddhist traditions, this magnificent concept of enlightenment. Sometimes when people come into the actual practice, they become focused on this outcome in a rather exclusive way. And that tends to dominate, you know, why we're here, why we're doing what we're doing, and every in, influences every moment along the path. It's as though one had come in carrying a banner that says enlightenment or bust. And sometimes busting happens before enlightenment <laughs> happens. And I have to say, without a certain amount of fire, you know, the, the path doesn't unfold so well. So a certain amount of this quality, which we might call dhamma-chanda, or a, a fervor for the Dharma and for uh, discovery really needs to be there. Yet, if it's not balanced with a sense of patience and trust in the unfolding, it can make us really tight in practice. And then that doesn't help the flowering so much. So I've been subject to some of this uh, myself. Living in California one is obligated to, to try other approaches from time to time. And about uh, 10 years or so ago, I went to this psychic in San Francisco who'd gotten rave reviews from my friends. You know, if you're in meditation circles in California, you're also in all these other circles. So I went to see this guy in San Francisco named Manfred. Maybe some of you know him. Sharda, I think, has met him. <laughs> And as soon as I walked through the door, actually Sally and I went together. It was very experimental, so we felt we needed support. As soon as I walked through the door, he said, whoa. He said, you're trying way too hard. (laughs) I don't know if it was my aura or, or what. He said, don't you know that God more likely shows himself to people who don't want him too much? I thought that was actually, for me, that was a very apt comment. So I've had to work over the years of practice with this sense of striving or a focus on the outcome, not to become fixated on the end result of practice. On the other hand, if one lets go of that dhamma chanda, that real uh, fervor for the dharma, then a meditation retreat can become a little too loose of a place. Here you're very much uh, on your your own a lot of the day. And someone might come into a retreat and say, oh, three good meals a day in a room of my own. I think I'll, you know, sleep for a week. And then if I have a single pain in my knee, I think I'll get up and leave the hall. And, of course, it takes a little more determination than that 
to work with all the ups and downs of an intensive retreat. So somewhere in the middle is a place where we can practice where we're really engaged and we're really motivated, but we're not putting extra pressure on ourselves. That kind of approach to meditation is what we're looking for in the quality of right attitude. One person summed up his approach to right attitude in three words. This is one Vipassana teacher. He said, the key is to relax, observe, and accept. This is a very good reminder if you want to remember over and over the pointing of right attitude. These are three good words to bring in mind. We begin with relaxation. So relaxation is not something that we come to after years and years of striving as a goal, but we start with relaxation. So I will encourage you all, and you'll probably hear it in the instructions many times, as you begin a period of sitting or as you begin a period of walking, see if you can find in your body and in your mind that quality of relaxation. It's not always easy, and you may not always be able to find it, but at least you can incline your practice in that direction. One of Suzuki Roshi's early comments when he was teaching in San Francisco Zen Center was that uh, we Westerners know how to relax our bodies, but we don't know how to relax our minds. And that was one of the things that his meditation was to learn about. When we relax our body at the beginning, let's say, of a sitting, it sends a strong message, I think, to our brain, somehow to our subconscious, by saying that I can relax here and now. Maybe it's through taking a few deep breaths. Maybe it's just through the sense of letting the mind fall into the body. We send the message to our whole nervous system that everything is okay, that it's safe to be calm, that nothing has to change, that things are all right just the way they are. And this is really the ground we want to have in our meditation, the sense everything is okay the way it is. The moment is fine the way it is. This is really the basis for the quality of trust or faith. In Pali, the word is sadha. It's the first of the five spiritual faculties. So we begin with that sense that things are okay the way they are. And we remember that they may not be perfect. They may not be exalted. But they may be good enough. In fact, maybe this moment is good enough the way it is. And that means good enough as a basis for us to start meditating. So the second piece of meditation in this uh, threefold description is observe. So once we're in the place of relaxation, then we simply want to notice, okay, what's happening? And if we can notice what's happening, we're meditating. So this is the activity of waking up. In this moment, we want to be awake. So this means that we're not particularly trying to figure out what's happening to us. We're not thinking about the past or the future. We're not trying to analyze 
you know, how it came about that our stomach feels a certain way on this morning, we're just observing. We're just noticing what the expression of life is in this moment. And of course, this is the activity of mindfulness. So whether we're observing our breath, our body, emotions, sounds, the passing thoughts, visual sights, not so important. What's important is that awake quality of knowing this present moment. The beauty of of observing is that it starts to open the door to understanding. Another way to say it is that mindfulness is the entry point for wisdom. As we start to see the way things come and go, the way things arise and pass in our body, in our mind, in the external environment, and we look closely, we start to learn the laws of nature. We start to learn the laws of the Dharma. And the only way to become free is to understand the way our own mind works. So this quality of close observation is the first step to understanding. And in Buddhism generally, understanding is the highest value. It's only understanding that can lead to freedom and the end of suffering. So this observation, the quality of mindfulness, is the direct route to understanding. Then the third part is acceptance. This links back really into relaxation, and it says, okay, whatever's happening in my mind and body and in the environment right now, I accept it. I don't struggle with it. I don't fight. I'm not in conflict. I can find inner peace right here and right now through this quality of acceptance. And as you know, that's not easy to do. There are so many times that we don't want what's happening to be happening. We want something else to be happening. And so we go back and forth, accepting and opening, and then, eh, it's not quite right. This is where, again, we can watch the attitude, the play of attitude. The attitude of acceptance brings us into peace. The attitude of not acceptance or wanting something else brings us into conflict and suffering is born. Um, Sally and Sharda and I flew here yesterday and got in last night. And Sally and I brought our cat with us. Our cat is 16 years old and had brain surgery last year. So we didn't feel that we wanted to leave her with a house sitter who didn't know her. So we brought the cat and IMS graciously offered to um, put her up along with us here. So I don't know if you've taken a pet on an airplane, but it's not a pleasant ordeal for the animal. We had her in a carrier, and she was squawking the whole time, you know, going through check-in, going through security, uh, lining up at boarding for the airplane. And when we got on the plane, we put her under the seat in front of us, and she just kept squawking the whole time. Once we got in the air, we took her out of the carrier, held her on our laps, and she calmed right down. And she went to sleep, and she was just very mellow for most of the journey. And then partway across the country, I don't know, it was probably around uh, Chicago or something, a flight attendant came down the aisle and said, uh, I'm sorry, but FAA regulations do not allow pets to be outside of their carrier. You're going to have to put her back in her carrier right now. 
So I saw my mind start to go back and forth between acceptance and fighting. Acceptance and fighting. And so we had a few words of discussion, and then Sharda kindly picked the discussion up and took it further with her. At one point I remember Sharda uh, saying to her, so now you've told us the FAA regulation, it's up to us to make our choice. (laughs) And the flight attendant said, it is definitely not up to you to make your choice. You have to comply with the FAA regulation. So here I'm going, wait a minute, this doesn't make sense. She's on our lap. She's not disturbing anybody. She's really happy. She's not crying. She's going to sleep. If we put her back in her carrier, she's going to start squawking and everybody else is going to get upset. But you know how there are some people whose mind is all about the regulation and the specific situation really doesn't matter? This is one of those people. So in the end, I could either feel angry and upset with her, which I did, or I could feel understanding that this is the way her mind relates to the regulation. And I can't argue. Because, you know, it's also an article of law that you have to obey the flight attendants. So if I, you know, resist, I could be arrested in Boston, and I wouldn't be here with you tonight. So I thought, I think it's probably better if I'm with you tonight. So we put her back in the carrier, and she squawked for the whole rest of the journey. You know, she cried and everybody around could hear her. And in fact, a woman a few aisles back said, yeah, I heard your cat crying toward the end of the trip. But for me, the interesting thing was, apart from caring about her experience, was watching my mind go back and forth between resistance and judgment and understanding and compassion. Resistance and understanding. And I wanted to argue and then the other side would come up and I just, I couldn't take it any further. So often that will happen in relation to body pain or knee pain or an unpleasant emotion. We can open to it for a moment and really accept it and feel it and understand it. And then it, it persists and we're back in resistance. So it's a very interesting place to observe where is there suffering and where is there peace or ease. And take a look at this on an, on an ongoing basis. So we start to see that we have in all our human minds a very, very deeply conditioned habit of making things right. In fact, of making things perfect in the moment because we don't want anything to be painful. This human tendency to constantly keep adjusting ourselves and the environment to make it just right is described by the Tibetans as the essence of samsara. They say the very essence of the mental movement that keeps us on the wheel, being born and dying, arising into suffering over and over and over, is the act of correcting. So this is a very profound pointing, this movement of acceptance. And you could say that the whole of our practice is noticing this quality moment after moment after moment. So how do we correct? There are two fundamental ways, of course, which you know. One is we try to make things pleasant, and the second is we try to make the unpleasant disappear. 
So one expresses itself through the activity of greed or wanting things a certain way. And the flip side of that coin is wanting to push away the things that don't conform to that, the fundamental movements of liking and disliking. If we look for the word right attitude in the teachings of the Buddha, the place it seems most closely linked to me is in the second factor of the Eightfold Path, Sankapa. This is often translated as right thought or right intention, but I think right attitude is also a valid aspect of Sankapa. This is how right intention is defined in the suttas. Right intention is the intention of renunciation, of non-ill will, of non-cruelty. So take a look at this, the act of renunciation. A synonym that's often used by the Buddha is relinquishment. So renunciation and relinquishment are pointing to the same thing. It's basically in our modern vernacular, letting go. Letting go of something that we would want to hold on to. Generosity is another expression of this same movement. Generosity is a form of relinquishment or letting go also. So the first intention is letting go of what is pleasant, appealing, lovely, desirable. The second and third aspects, non-ill will and non-cruelty, are basically the opposites. Okay, let me say one other thing. They're the expressions, both expressions of the mind state of aversion. Non-ill will is the expression of metta. Non-cruelty is the expression of compassion. So these are basically saying metta and compassion. So these sum up the intention not to react with aversion. So the heart of right intention is not being greedy and not being aversive. Now, if you want to refine it a little more, when the Buddha talks about action and karma, he talks about the roots of what's wholesome and the roots of what's unwholesome. And he says, what is the root of the wholesome? Non-greed is a root of the wholesome. Non-hate is a root of the wholesome. Non-delusion is a root of the wholesome. So when you put these, these together, it, add, it basically restates non-greed and non-aversion and adds in non-delusion. So these three together can become the core of how we look at right attitude. And I want to suggest that there's a really simple way to apply this teaching in any moment in your meditation practice. If you're sitting, walking, in the dining room, wherever you are, you can check your mental attitude by asking three questions. Am I wanting something to happen? Am I resisting something that's happening? Am I knowing? Let's say, am I not knowing what's happening? So the first, am I wanting something to happen? If the answer to that is yes, bingo, you've got greed. If you're resisting something that's happening, that is aversion. If you're not knowing what's happening, that is delusion. So if any of these three are in play, then our mind is not quite, let's say, in the optimal attitude for meditation. So it's very, it becomes very, very interesting to explore in an ongoing way 
these qualities of greed, aversion, and delusion. And again, I would just keep it really simple. Do I want something to happen? Am I resisting something? Am I not knowing what's happening? So, for instance, transition times in retreats, whether you're ongoing or you're coming in new, are very interesting times to watch these formations. As you go into the dining room tonight, for those of you who've been continuing, were there any thoughts of, wow, it's really getting crowded in here? Were there any thoughts of, why are these new people so noisy? Were there any thoughts of, hmm, why didn't they serve tonight what they served last night? Were there any thoughts of, oh, the room's too hot or too cold? These are, you know, subtle or not so subtle movements of liking and disliking. And in any moment we can wake up, our thoughts are telling us what's happening. We can wake up to the presence of these. If you just come in from outside, also a lot of thoughts usually get activated coming into a new retreat situation. Where's my room? Is it in a quiet part of the building or am I right next to the stairs or right next to the showers? Oh, check the schedule. Is there enough time after the work period for me to get in a shower before the first morning? Uh, Is there anybody really cute on this retreat? I'll check it out as soon as I get in the hall. What's my yogi job? Do I like it? Do I not like it? And all the questions are kind of around, this is a new place, is it going to be okay for me? Checking out, am I going to be safe here? Am I going to find my way? Plenty of opportunity for liking and disliking. And then if we don't notice those movements of liking and disliking, then we're missing something. We're missing what's happening and delusion is present. So if we're not knowing what's happening, we can come back into the present moment really quickly. Just notice something that's happening. Could be a breath, a sound, a sensation, an emotion, a thought, a visual sight. Just notice what's happening. Then you're in touch with the present moment. If you're if you notice that there's greed, then see if it can be released and move into acceptance. If you notice there's aversion, see if it can be released and move into acceptance. Sometimes it can and sometimes it can't. But be aware that if the mind is caught in one of these reactions, the meditation will not be as clear as it could be because the mind's clouded by that reactive formation. For those of you who've been practicing for a while, of course the the desires and aversions get more subtle. They start to relate more to the meditation itself. So there's a a longing for uh, repeating a very still and present sitting. There's, there's a yearning for states of concentration or the absence of thought. And you can feel this in your body at times. It feels like the body can't settle in in a relaxed way to the present moment because there's a straining for something else. You may not even know what it is, but you can feel how the body is like lifting up, moving towards something else, and often it's a memory of some beautiful meditation state some peace, some love, some rapture that we want to have again. So we tune into the movement of greed even as it relates to very refined states that we touch. And it's a good uh, recollection that as one teacher said, we're not practicing to try to stop thinking. First, because it's impossible. 
We can't do it. So that will be frustrating. But we're practicing so that we know our thoughts when they're there. Oftentimes, part of the striving in meditation is we want to stop thoughts from coming because we love peace. But now we're clinging. We're attached. We're trying to recreate something. So we need to accept just the way things are. If there are thoughts, what are they? Observe the thoughts just as easily as you would observe the breath. But suppose I look and I'm not wanting something particular to happen. I'm not resisting what's happening and I'm in touch with what's happening in the present moment. This is the expression of non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion. This is the expression of a, a very wholesome state of mind. And it's from this wholesome, clear, unbiased view that we can best see things the way they are, the way things really happen in our experience. One teacher described this kind of right attitude as an unentangled knowing. This is really what we're trying to set the conditions to unfold. And this is where the Uh, the persistent looking at right attitude will lead you. As you examine the movements of wanting, of not wanting, of delusion, you'll find that that they will be refined, they will diminish and sometimes fall away by that very examination. And so start to notice when you're in this place where the three are not present and there truly is non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion. This is uh, experienced as a kind of balance, a kind of contentment, and a clarity, an unentangled knowing. And then this can become more the reference point that the mind will guide itself back to again and again, a very fertile ground for insight. Sariputta, the, one of the Buddha's chief disciples, was once asked, what is Nibbana? He answered that it is the destruction of greed the destruction of hatred, and the destruction of delusion. This is called Nibbana. So I hope you notice that this is very close to the description of right attitude. The absence of greed, although not yet completely destroyed, the absence of hatred, and the absence of delusion, even though they're temporary, comes very close to the description of Nibbana. So what this says to me is that this right attitude, as we start to find it in our meditation experience, and it's never so far away, it's never that remote, starts to resemble very closely the very goal of the path that we're walking. So we don't have to wait for a 100,000 lifetimes down the road to get a sense of non-greed, non-hatred, and non-delusion. We can find it now in this quality of right attitude and it gives us a little bit of a taste of the very end of the path. For me, this becomes a really inspiring way to look at practice because the path and the goal start to merge. What I am heading for is not so different than the way I'm walking. The goal comes closer, the path rises to meet it, and we can abide in this kind of contentment, and fulfillment, at least temporarily. 
So this is really what I wanted to say uh, this evening on the subject of right attitude. You'll hear us talk a lot more about it as we go through uh, the retreat. For now, I would encourage you to take up this investigation as something you direct the mind to uh, regularly. I encourage you to look regularly at the presence of greed, aversion, or delusion, or the presence of non-greed, non-aversion, non-delusion. And this will itself be the way to refine and develop the quality of right attitude. Usually at the end of our Dharma talks, we like to sit uh, for just a moment, a few moments in silence together and kind of let the words settle and then prepare for a walking. So at this point, let's just sit for a minute together, please. The destruction of greed, the destruction of hatred, the destruction of delusion. This is called Nibbana. Thank you for your attention this evening. I know a lot of you have traveled today and must be tired. I appreciate your wakefulness. One announcement, uh, we're going to start the interviews tomorrow for the part two of the retreat. All of you who have been here for six weeks already uh, will be seen tomorrow. So whether you were seen uh, Wednesday or earlier, we're going to see all of the six-week people tomorrow. So please, all of you, check the notice board uh, for your interview times. And um, we're going to see just a handful of the new people tomorrow as a way to balance out uh, the retreat so that it's about 50% on one day and 50% on another. The rest of you who aren't seen, the new people who aren't seen tomorrow, we will see you either Saturday or Sunday. So we'll touch base with you in the first couple of days one way or another. So please, uh, that means basically everybody needs to check the interview schedule uh, tomorrow morning, so please do that. And in the sitting uh, tomorrow, we'll describe where the interview rooms are located and you'll know where to track us down. So for this evening, uh, we have a walking period now at 9.15. There's the the last sitting. And we will, uh, because people are continuing, we will continue with that sitting this evening. And there will be chanting at that late sitting. And I believe it is the sharing of the blessings, right? And you're going to, Andrea will lead that sitting and chanting of the sharing of the blessings. So if you're uh, just arrived and body is tired, uh, want to skip that sitting tonight, you have full permission. Uh, start tomorrow morning with a, a 5 o'clock wake-up, 5.30 sit, and we look forward to seeing you at the first sitting after breakfast. Please rest well. <laughs>